Okay. All right. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, they never hurt me. Does anyone actually think that's true anymore? Like, is that, does anyone even say that anymore? Like, is that even a thing? I, I, I think like, you know, we used to talk, we used to say that when we were kids. Sticks and stones, may, you know, but words, words don't hurt me. That's just not true. Okay. Words hurt. I still remember the things that were said to me in eighth grade. Dear Lord, how much have they shaped my life? I don't know. You know, I still remember the, the, the things that, that, that have been said to me. Words are powerful. Words um, have the power to really create life in so many ways. And they also have the, the power to take away life in, in so many ways, don't they? It never ceases to amaze me how much what I say when it enters out of, it goes out of my mouth and back into my ears, it has the ability to shape the way I feel and think. Like, it never ceases to amaze me, right? It's just, it's just I, you ever find yourself, you're saying negative words, and those negative words start to enter back into your mind, all of a sudden you're feeling negative. Or the, or the opposite. You, you say positive words, all of a sudden they enter back into your head. Our words are powerful, and they're powerful because we're made in the image of a God who has powerful words. We're made in the image of a God who speaks, who speaks powerfully. There's a really interesting, we're not going to turn there, but there's a really interesting story in 2 Kings chapter 6 uh, about the, the prophet Elisha. And here's kind of what's going on just basically. So the, um, the, uh, the Syrians are trying to take over Israel. They militarily, they want to wipe out Israel. And they keep sending sort of a military onslaught after military onslaught. And every time they go to try to take out Israel, Israel somehow magically knows what they're going to do and, and beats them to the punch. And the reason is because there was a prophet in that land named Elisha. And Elisha was tipping off the king. God was giving him sort of this special knowledge into what was happening. He was tipping off the king of Israel. So the king of Syria gets really frustrated. He finally figures out it's because of Elisha that I'm not able to be militarily uh, victorious, right? So he basically takes thousands of men, chariots, horses, and they go and they surround Elisha's house. Okay, uh, imagine how terrifying. This is this one prophet and his servant in, in their home. And, and it says, uh, I'll just read it for you here, Second Kings 6. You can read it on your own later. Second Kings 6, 15. The servant of the man of God. So this is Elisha's servant. He gets up in the morning. The servant of the man of God rose in the... Oh, the, I, there I am. There I am. Okay. Oh, praise God. Yeah. He, what's, is that it? He, yeah. Oh, oh, hello. All right. Okay. What about this one? Can I have this one back? Check, check. Can I, did I turn it off? Check, check. Nope. There I am. Oh, we got it. Woo! Hey, guys, give it up for Michael Daniels back there. That's not his job. So he's, he's just doing me a favor by, by messing with that right now. So thank you, Lord. All right. So 2 Kings 6, the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Now, you can imagine this, okay? You wake up in the morning, and on your doorstep are thousands of chariots and horses and war, men of war, ready to basically take you out in your house. And I love this. This is one of my favorite Old Testament stories. Um, and the servant said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And I love it. Elisha said, note that, he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, it sounds like Elisha is just speaking nonsense right now. Like, who are you talking about? Who is stronger with us? What do you mean? It's just me and you in the house, and we're surrounded by all of these military, uh, you know, onslaught. What, what do you mean? Who is stronger? Then Elisha prayed, 
and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. This is so cool, guys. This is Bible. So cool. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Isn't that cool? I mean, this young guy wakes up terrified, freaked out. They're completely surrounded. What are we going to do? Elisha seems cool as a cucumber. He says, don't worry about it. We have more people on our side. The young man's like, what are you talking about? And then Elisha prays. The man's eyes are open. What is he seeing? He's seeing the God of angel armies. He's seeing the Lord of hosts and his army, the angelic hosts, ready to go to battle for them. The hills are surrounded. Now, what's my point? My point is, What changed here in this moment? The sight of the servant changed. Do you see it? See, he couldn't see what was before, and he was terrified. And then as soon as his eyes were opened to ultimate reality, he saw out of his dimension, he saw beyond his circumstance, all of a sudden, everything changes. And what Elisha does here is he does exactly what we're called to do today as the church and as Christians. We are called to speak reality and pray that the people that we are speaking it to can have their eyes open to see. To see what? To see that there is something so much greater than what we can see. To see that there is so much more reality than what we have experienced in this world. And our words have the ability to bring people into that kind of clarity when we speak truth, amen? God is omnipotent, right? You know what that means? It means he can do anything. Okay, why did God, who could have created the cosmos, he could have created time, space, matter, everything that we've experienced in our life, the natural realm, why did God choose to, to, to do it the way he did, and which is to speak it? You ever think about that? God could have thought the, the universe into existence. He could have blinked the universe into existence. He could have pointed the universe into existence. Yet God chose to make his verbal decree his decreative word, the, the, the way and the source of his creative power. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. Genesis, in the beginning, right? God said, let there be light. Let there be land. Let there be life. God speaks and creation comes forth. And then what do we learn in the New Testament? As we study New Testament theology, we find John, the apostle, introduces us to this idea in John chapter 1 that when God the Father spoke creation, he was actually creating through whom? The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Father, actually created the heavens through God the Son. John says that Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God, that God the Father speaks creation through God the Son. Colossians 1 tells us that all things were made by Jesus, for Jesus. He was the Word of God. God speaks, and he speaks life through the Son. How does that all work? I don't know. But isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? We find that actually Jesus was present at creation. He was present because God was actually creating through the sun. And now here's what's so interesting. That's how God created the first time God created. And that's how God's creating the second time God's creating. And you say, what do you mean God's creating again? Well, the gospel is actually the news that God is creating again. See, he, he picked a new man. This time, not Adam. He picked Jesus. 
the new Adam, the new man, the new progenitor, the new first, the new genesis of a new existence, a new eternal existence started with Jesus. See, this world in many ways died. Death overtook it. Adam failed. Sin crept in, and we live in a cursed world. But when Jesus came into this world, he came not only to die for our sins, but to die so that he could be reborn as the first creation, not a created being, but the first creation of a whole new existence. And you and I, when we get saved, we enter into that new existence, which means that God created the first time through the word and he's creating again through the word. Are you with me? Are you following me? So what that means is that when we speak the gospel, we are speaking new created life. And when people receive the gospel and they repent and they say, I want to be united with Jesus, I want to be, become one with his new resurrection life, they become pulled into this new eternal existence. What we're doing here, who we are here, the unity that we have here as a body is more real than anything you've experienced in your life because this will carry eternally. This is practice. This is God's kingdom breaking into this world you will be with your church family forever. You ever think about that? We'll all have way better bodies. We'll all be way better looking. I mean, you guys are good looking. We'll be better looking. Everything about this world will be better. All because Jesus was the firstborn of many. You ever read that verse and wondered what that meant? Jesus was the firstborn. That doesn't mean he was created. It means he was the first being in the, an entirely new existence, and we follow him into that. My point is that God's word has power, and when we speak the gospel, we speak power. It's incredible. Listen to what Hebrews says, Hebrews 4.12. We're going to study Hebrews, by the way, starting in November, and we're going to be in it for a year. It's going to be awesome. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, for the word of God is living. You know why it's living? Because it's a person, and he's alive, and he sent his spirit. So yes, these words are powerful, but they're powerful because they represent the reality of Jesus' resurrected life. And his spirit is even now actively working. The word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit. That means it gets into the places that you can't get. It means it gets into the part of your heart and your soul and your mind that you can't access. God's word is this, this pointed ability, this sharp ability to get in there and work stuff out that you don't even know is there. That's why we need God's word. That's why we need to sit under God's word. We need to study God's word. We need to read God's word continually. Into the division of the soul and of the spirit and the joints of the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's word is powerful. And that's why this morning we're going to spend the morning talking about the importance of speaking God's word. Are you with me? Speaking God's word. Last week we talked about the importance of hearing God's word. We looked at Romans chapter 1. And we talked about the fact that the gospel, which is news, the declaration of what Jesus has done. Now hear me, if, you're, if this is your first week, if you weren't here last week, I need you to hear this. The gospel is not something that you're supposed to do. The gospel is not an ethic. The gospel is news of something that has happened. Jesus came. Jesus died a propitiation death for those who would believe, and he rose again, and he's seated at the right end of the Father, ruling the cosmos, waiting to come back and consummate his kingdom. That's the gospel. That's a declaration. That's news. It's something that's happened. It's not a, a way of living. 
Now, we respond to that news, okay? That's the Christian life is responding to that news. So last week, we talked about the dunamis, the power of God, uh, the power of the gospel to save. Dunamis, we talked about, it's dynamic. The gospel's dynamic. When we speak it, it has this dynamic and dynamite way of, of, of blasting into people's lives and transforming them and change them, changing them. We talked about the fact that the gospel is more than words. It's a person. It's Jesus and everything that he's done, everything he's doing, everything he will do. That's why it's so powerful. It's not just words. It's not just lip service. It's words that represent realities. And we talked about the fact that the gospel is not just for non-Christians. It is for Christians. The gospel is the means by which we are saved. It is the means by which we are sanctified. That just means set apart, changed, transformed. The gospel is something that moves us to maturity as Christians. So, this morning, we're going to, like I said, we're going to talk about the importance of speaking the gospel, and I'm going to try to work through this material really quickly because I have something really fun we're going to do at the end together as a, as a church. So Ephesians chapter 4, you guys there? Ephesians chapter 4, let me give you a little bit of background. This incredible book, one of Paul's four letters that he wrote from prison. The church of Ephesus was a church, an urban center in Asia Minor. Asia Minor, you probably know of where the, the seven churches that the seven letters were written to in the book of Revelation. Uh, Ephesus was kind of the main urban center there. So what Paul and a lot of the guys would do is they'd come into the big cities, they'd plant churches in the big cities, and then the big cities would send out missionaries to the smaller towns and smaller areas. So Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. It was a very frequent place for him. He set up a school there. He, uh, we have a lot about his interactions with his church in the book of Acts. You can read about. Um, and now he's taking a moment from prison. Uh, he's, he's, been, he's imprisoned for the gospel. He's taking a moment to write a letter to the church of Ephesus. He's going to spend the first three chapters, which we're not going to look at, uh, talking about theology. Who is God? What has God done? You could say gospel. Paul, for three chapters, has declared gospel truth. This is what God has done. Now he's going to spend the next three chapters, where we're going to punch in, talking about what we should do in response to that. Okay, let's start in verse one. I therefore, okay, what's the therefore? It's therefore a reason, right? What's it therefore? Come with us therefore, you gotta ask, what's it therefore, right? That's the, that's the, the cheesy thing. Okay, it's, it's therefore a reason. Therefore, everything that he said up until this point has been what God is doing. Everything up until this point has been what God has done. Therefore, because of that, he says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, Okay, uh, I love that. I love that he says, even though I'm in prison, really, I'm in prison for the Lord. It's just God's sovereignty why I'm in prison. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, I need to stop right there because there's such an important New Testament theological truth here that you have to know. What Paul is saying is, well, let me say what he's not saying. Paul is not saying, walk in a manner that will allow you to become worthy of the calling. It's not what he's saying. What does he say? Walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling which you have already been called. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to live out of what already has been given to us. We are credited all righteousness through faith and faith alone by God's grace. And then we live into that reality that's already ours. So he's saying he's calling the Ephesians to live according to the way God's already saved them. That God's already called them. Now, there's a word here I need you to see, and it's the word you. Okay, when you read this and you read it and it says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, 
to walk in a manner worthy, you and I as Westerners, as, as people reading English translations, we go, oh, Paul's talking to individuals. This is meant to be read for individuals because we're very individualistic culture, aren't we? We, we think about ourselves and our own self-satisfaction, our own self-sustaining everything. We're, we're just an individualistic culture. So we read this and we think Paul's talking to individuals. He's not. There's a breakdown in the language here. That word you really should be translated y'all. Problem is that's not really grammatically a good word, right? So he, he's talking to a group. He's not talking to individuals. So what we do, we sit down in the morning with our latte and our pen, and we go, Lord, you're going to speak a word to me. And we go, oh, he says you, so he's talking to me. And, and you write down, that's fine. But here's the problem, guys. I'm going to make this really clear. You can't do what's in this chapter alone. Most of the New Testament, you can't do it alone. And we've so radically individualized our Christian experience in the West to fit our own culture, that we've realized, we haven't realized that to do the Christian life is not to be alone. Everything Paul's going to say here, you can't do by yourself. You need a body to do it with. So I need you to see that. Every time he says you, he's not talking to you. He's talking to us, the body, the church, specifically here, Ephesus, and um, in relation to us here at Philippi, okay? So see that. Verse 2. Now, notice everything he's going to say here, you have to do it with other people. You ever try to play ping pong by yourself? It's so hard. I tried it one time. You know, you put the other part of the table up, and you're like, P -p 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 -p. it's not fun after a while. You're just like, man, you ever really play solitaire? Okay, Christianity is not solitaire. You can't play it by yourself. Okay, verse 2. <laughs> with all humility, if you're by yourself, who are you humble towards? With all gentleness... If you're by yourself, who are you gentle towards? Yourself? With patience, who are, if you're by yourself, who, who are you patient towards? Your dog? Your coworkers? Well, this is talking about Christians. This is supposed to be between Christians. Bearing with one another in love. Who are you, who are you bearing one another with love if you're not with other Christians? See, everything Paul's calling them to do as a result of the gospel has to be done in a body, in the body of Christ. Verse 3. Notice this, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, here's a good rule of biblical hermeneutics. That's how to interpret the Bible. Uh, when you notice a word come up a lot, it's important. What word here comes up a lot? No, that's good. Two, five. One. One. I was looking for one word in specific. One. What's Paul trying to teach us here? He's trying to say, hey, there is a oneness. Now, this isn't a oneness that we have to work towards, actually. This particular oneness is a oneness that simply is. It's the oneness of the Spirit. Now, follow me on this. When you got saved, if you did, if you have, when you got saved um, and you were baptized, the Spirit of God okay, came into you and united you with the church. You became one with the church. Now, you may not like the church. You may not go to church. You may despise the church. You're still one with the church, okay? It's like, so if you get married and then you, you don't want anything to do with your spouse, you're, you're still married, okay? You're still married. You could be like, well, I'm just gonna move out. Like, you're still married. So we are one spiritually as the church. And church, by definition, is for Christians, Okay? If you're not a Christian, we welcome you here. We're glad you're here, and, and I hope you can hear the gospel this morning. But we really, we should form this time for Christians because that's what the church is. 
Now, verse 7. But grace, notice that word, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, that's an interesting statement if you think about it because it sounds like Paul's saying that gift is give, or grace is given in measures. Here's the thing you need to know about verse 7. Grace here is not saving grace. It's sanctifying grace. Okay, let me explain it like this. You, you've been given all the grace you need as a Christian to be saved. But God has given different Christians different measures of sanctifying, working, practical grace for them to grow and to give to others. Okay, um, so I know we, we love this idea that everything should be fair in the world and everyone should have the same measure of this and the same measure of that. It's just not true, okay? I don't have, I'm not seven feet tall. I can't dunk a basketball, okay? Everyone in the church has been given different measures of sanctifying grace. For what purpose? For themselves, so they can feel good about themselves? No, to reinvest in the body, right? Each of you have been given a measure of God's sanctifying grace for the purpose of the Spirit of God to work that through the body to bring maturity, okay? And you need to follow Paul's logic here. There's a logic that I need you to see because he, he's very logical in the way that he builds things. Verse eight, therefore, now this is so cool. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives captive and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Let me just explain that to you. Paul is using a wartime picture to give an example of what the gospel is. He said the gospel is like this. Jesus, our hero, went into enemy lines by becoming a man, by moving into creation, and he defeated the enemy. And then Paul uses this amazing picture of the procession, the, the, the parade coming back into the capital after our hero has just taken over the, the, the battlefield. And when he's coming, he's leading captives that have been set free. So Jesus set people free on the cross and the resurrection. He set people free that were dead. And he came bringing this wagon full of gifts, the gifts of the spirit. So this is what happened. Jesus, when he died, he made atonement for sin. Okay. He set captives free, and then he went to the right end of the Father, him and the Holy Spirit, high-fived on their way. Holy Spirit came down. He went up. I don't know if that's blasphemous, but I just always picture it that way. Okay, Jesus is like, I'm going to the right end of the Father. You're going to go down and do my thing down there and finish what we started down here. Holy Spirit comes down and gives gifts to the church. Now, when I say gifts, some of you that have grew up in the church are thinking spiritual gifts, right? Okay, well, yes but much more than just some spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit endowed the church with a mass amount of riches for the purpose of building it up to maturity. Um, and some example of that we see here in verse 11. Paul's gonna give example. He says, for example, he gave the apostles. The apostles were a gift given by the Spirit for the purpose of laying the foundation of the doctrine of the church that we believe. The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, Paul is giving examples of gifts that have been given to the church by the Spirit of God. I want you to see in that verse 11, I want you to see the diversity of that. A lot of different types of functions in there. Prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, apostles. But here's what I really need, here's what you need to see. And we're going to come to the point here. Here's what Paul really wants you to see. Why did he give apostles? Why did he give prophets? Why did he give evangelists? Why did he give shepherds? Why did he give teachers? These are leaders in the church. The primary leaders within the church, why did God give them? Here's the answer. 
Listen, this is important. Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, let me tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say God gave church leadership to equip the saints and to do the work of the ministry. What does it say? It says to equip the saints, what? For the work of the ministry. Guys, this is huge. This is a huge paradigm shift in the West because see what we've done is we've created this culture where we hire professionals to do the ministry. You need help? Call the pastor. You need help? Call the counselor. You need help? Call the person on staff, right? And the rest of the body is wilting out here in the sanctuary going, all we're supposed to do is come and listen to sermons. And maybe we clean, maybe we set up a chair, but we don't have any spiritual maturity to give. That's that guy on stage. That's his job. Well, what does this say? This says it's the church leadership's job to teach the body how to do the work of the ministry. Isn't that a little different than what maybe we've been told or heard or thought of? I thought it was the pastor's job to do all the ministry. (laughs) No, actually, it's the pastor's job to teach the church how to do all the ministry. That's completely a paradigm shift. It's completely, and this is bedrock and fundamental and foundational to everything that we think about here at Philippi. What we're trying to do is we're trying to create a culture where it's not you come get ministered to by the professionals. It's you come and get trained to minister to the body. That's your job and my job. You have more to offer than some physical resource. You have more to offer than a butt in a seat, in a bill, in a box. Okay, you have spiritual resources according to God's gift of sanctifying grace that have been given to you by the Holy Spirit, paid for by the blood of Christ so that you could reinvest them into the living organism of the spiritual work of God's bride, his body, to build it up unto maturity. Isn't that cool? You, you have a lot to do here. You have a lot to bring here. You, we need you. We don't just need you to come so we can say, look, we got a bunch of people in a room. If that's what we're doing, I'm just going to go home. I don't care about getting a bunch of people in a room. I care about the real organic life of the spirit building the body up when Christians are stepping into their giftings and their callings and speaking the gospel over each other. How much do we need to build? Well, Paul answers, verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, That's not singular. That's, you know, if you're like 16 and you're sitting there reading that and you're like waiting for your voice to change or maybe you're 13, it's not talking about you turning into a man. It's not what this this is talking to a group of people that we as a church need to grow up into the mature manhood of the fullness of Christ, 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul says, here's why you need to build the body. Here's why you need to grow the church up. First of all, because you need to attain to unity in the faith. Secondly, because you need to attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Here's what you need to realize. There is something about God that you will not learn simply by sitting inside your house listening to sermons and reading theology books. You will learn something about Christ by learning something about Christ's body. Who is Christ's body? People that are saved. Not simply something you can watch on YouTube. Okay? We attain to the knowledge of the Son of God together through one another. Okay? You need to see that. We grow up to 
the maturity of our head. Now, this is kind of a funny picture, but Paul chooses this picture of the body. It's unique to the New Testament. He says the church is like a body, and the body has the head. And who is the head? Jesus. So the body's job is to do whatever the head tells the body to do. Okay, why this is significant is because Jesus' earthly ministry didn't end with the ascension. Did you know that? Jesus, let me say it again. Jesus' earthly ministry, his physical bodily ministry, didn't end when he went to heaven. You're saying, what do you mean? It continued through his body. You are his body. Hands, feet, elbows, ears. You are his body. And when you're connected to him, the head, his earthly ministry continues on through it. So the goal is that we as a church, Philippi, we would grow up to be an adequate body for the head, which is already mature, Jesus. Are you getting that picture? It's kind of silly. I don't know, maybe it was a bad idea, but think about like a tiny little body on a giant head. It just doesn't work. Okay, we need to be a mature body that is suitable for the mature head, which is Jesus Christ. So we need to grow up. We need to grow up. Amen. We need to grow up in order to be not, look, 14, so that we may not be carried away, tossed to and fro like children in the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Guys, I, I'm so tired of Christians getting swept up in crap theology because they are separated from the church. I'm so tired of it. It couldn't be clearer. Paul is saying, if you are not in the body, if you're not being built up by the body, and if you're not building up the body, then you will be swept away by every wind of doctrine. You need the body so that you don't get swept away. I had this funny experience with my son. He's seven years old. He's just kind of learning how to swim with a life vest on, and he's been terrified of water most of his life. We went to the lake. This was your family camp, and he did really good at the lake. He was pretty confident. He, like, swam out to the buoys. He was really proud of himself. He's like, man, I swam out to the buoys. Check that out. He's feeling really good. He's talking about swimming constantly. So then we went to the river, and he doesn't know the difference between a river and a lake. So he's just ready to go. Gets on his thing. He's ready to just go confidently paddle around in the river. He jumps in the river. And this thing that he's introduced to this new thing called a current. My son's he's seven. He's, he's not very big. You know, he's, he's boop, there he goes down the current. And in his mind, he doesn't really realize that he's going down the current. He's just swimming. So here's me. And I'm like, I got to go get him. <laughs> Guess I'm getting wet. Okay. Jump into the water. And I grab my son before he sweeps off down the current. And he's mad at me. Dad, I got it. Stop. Will you let, me, let me go. I'm fine. I'm like, no, dude, you don't understand. You're, you're floating down. And he was so mad at me. Dad, I can do it. Let me go. I'm like, okay. So I let him go, and he kind of float away, and I'm like, ah, okay. And I grab him because I didn't want to swim, you know? I just didn't want to. I kept doing it, and he just was so angry. In his mind, he didn't have a clue that he was being swept away. See, here's the problem my son doesn't have the body mass to keep up with that current, and neither do you, okay? Get real with yourself. You don't. You need the church. You need the church. You need each other because we get led astray. We get swept downstream. We get, well, the lights just got dim. We get, we get, we really do. We need the body. We need each other. Paul's trying to get us to see that. And we need, and the, the church is more than just listening to sermons. Who knows you? Who knows what's going on in your life? Who's going to call you? Who's going to notice when you're not there? Who's going to help you think through things? Who's going to notice when there's sin coming out of your life? Who's going to notice when you're saying prideful things, arrogant things, lustful things? Who's going to say, hey, I think you're not believing the gospel here. Who's going to do that in your life? Anybody? Well, there's a lot of people right here that you can press into, and I encourage you to do that because you need the body. So here's the point I want to get to. Here's Paul's point. It's what he's been leading up to here. 
So how do we build the body? Verse 15 tells us, speaking the truth in love. Notice the word rather, by the way. Instead of being swept away, instead of being caught up in every current, instead of being lied to, instead of being taken away by, by false doctrine, instead, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, notice that, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's vision for the local church, that every part has a contributive part of building itself up in love. And how does all of this happen? Our key verse is right there in verse 15, speaking truth in love. That's how the church grows. That's how the church is built. It's not built by big budgets. It's not built by cool rock worship bands. It's not built by good preaching. It's built when the body builds itself up in love. And that's what's happening here at Philippi. Some of you guys are new. You're like, this is cool. I like this church. It's because the body's building itself. You guys, you guys are building into each other. That's creating health. That's creating, that's how a church grows. Now, let me, let, me, let me put a finer point on what Paul means by speaking the truth in love. I wanna spend the rest of our time, uh, just a few more minutes here, looking at what he means by that. I wanna break it down into three, three sections. So first, speaking, second, the truth, third, in love, okay? Speaking the truth in love. Start with speak, okay? What I want you guys, I'll just tip my hand, what I want you guys to, to, to feel and experience and come out of here today, I wanna empower you guys to become gospel practitioners, you know what a practitioner is? So there's the people that sit in the ivory towers and just write books about medical stuff. And then there's the guys that actually stick their hands into people's um, bodies, cavities, and, and, and cut arteries and, 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 and sew things up. That's the practitioners. The people that are actually on the ground doing medicine. Okay, so, so we are supposed to be gospel practitioners, every Christian. We're supposed to be people that are on the battlefield while people are bleeding out, showing up with the gospel and applying that gospel to the area that it needs to be applied to. It's practical theology. It needs to be practical, useful, okay? So my goal would be for us as a church to be a place that's cranking out mature gospel practitioners that are thinking about how to build up this body um, to maturity with the gospel. So when Paul says speaking the truth in love, he's not saying, uh, telling that person that they have some cream cheese on their face lovingly. That's not what he's, that's not what he's saying. Or like, hey man, I think you got a problem. Love ya. Hey, you know, you smell kind of funky. Uh, love you. The other day, my wife handed me a cough drop. I was like, why are you handing me a cough drop? I just thought you might want a cough drop. I'm like, why would I want a cough drop? She's like, well, you have bad breath. I'm like, oh, okay. That makes sense. That's not what he's talking about here, right? Like, when your wife hands you a cough drop, just take it, okay? Don't ask. Um, she, if she had gum, she would have given it to me. But Anyways, uh, it's not, that's not what speaking in truth love means here. It's not, hey, you know, you're, you're kind of annoying. I <laughs> love you, brother. It's not what this is talking about. Get that out of your head. This is, you could say it this way. This is speaking the gospel in a loving way. Speaking the gospel in a loving way. The truth of what has happened. So let's break that down. First, speak. This might seem obvious to you, but you have to open your mouth to build the church. You do. And, and this, is, this is groundbreaking nowadays because we're never really asked to. You know, for, for the most part in the West, church is like, man, you just come and you sit and you listen. Church actually was meant to be a place where you could open your mouth, and we're going to spend the rest of our time doing this this morning. You actually open your mouth, and you actually speak, and you have a voice. 
But, but, but th- th- that, that has to be part of it. And I have this theory uh, about why evangelism is not really um, happening a lot in the West. And I think it's because we don't practice speaking the gospel to Christians, so we don't have the confidence to speak the gospel to non-Christians. I think we, we, we don't actually, we're never asked to communicate gospel realities in a safe place. So when it's time and you're at work and your, your, your coworker happens to ask you something about your faith, it's just like, oh, can I send you a YouTube video? This one guy says it way better. Absolutely not. I mean, yeah, sure, send a YouTube video, but good grief. We should, this should be a place where we're so used to speaking the gospel that when a non-Christian asks, we're ready to do it. So what I'm going to propose to you is, is this language that we've been using around here called gospel fluency. Can you become a person who is fluent in speaking the gospel? Can you become a person? You know what fluency means? Fluency means you can speak something fluently, okay? You go to another country and you know the language and you can just kind of rattle off and say whatever. That's fluency. And there's fluency in all kinds of different areas, right? Um, there, there's, there's, there's fluency in the, the world. I went flying with Kenny McGowan the other day and it, he was talking to the guy up on the tower and he was like, he might as well, he might have been speaking Latin. I don't know. It was like, yeah, nine or nine or six, two, three, four. Two. I was so impressed. Kenny, I was like, dude, you're the man. That was, you were fluent in speaking to that traffic control area, right? Fluency means you know the words, you know the language, you know the realities. And I'm not just talking about using big theological words, and I'm not just talking about Christianese. I'm talking about you understand the realities of the gospel in such a way that you can actually apply them to people's lives. Gospel fluency. You've got to be able to speak the gospel in such a way that it connects. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, but in your hearts, you guys know this verse, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's what Peter's saying. He's, not, he's using the word apologia, by the way, for reason. That's where we get the, word, the, the idea of apologetics. It's, it's a defense or an argument. He's not saying have a three-point rebuttal for anyone who comes like Richard Dawkins and attacks the idea of creation in the Bible. That's not what he's saying. He's saying be ready at any point to give anyone an explanation of why you have hope. The gospel is the answer to why you have hope. If I were to ask you right now, why do you have hope? What would you say? Well, Jesus, okay, well, why do you have open Jesus? Why is that good news? Oh, Jesus saves, okay, how? Well, how does Jesus save? Well, he, he died, died for my sins. Okay, why is that good news? Why do I care about that? Well, because you were, you were headed to hell. Well, why was I headed to hell? Well, because God's righteous and you, you sinned and, and, and you're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, okay, well, so, so, so my sins are forgiven, but I'm still dying of cancer. So why is that good news? Well, because Jesus resurrected, and you're going to get a new body if you believe in him. See how this is good news. This is good news. Um, you need to be able to speak that. You need to be able to speak that. Here's what, here's what you don't need to be able to say. Okay, you don't need to say, like, like, just things that don't really matter. Like, everything will be okay. God's good. Was that too offensive? Sorry. I mean, we, our culture, man, we are allergic to truth claims right now, aren't we? Like any, if someone even, like you even sniff a truth claim or like, you're uninclusive. It's like, why? I just said that God is love. Yeah, well, you think I'm a sinner. You know, it's like, okay, well, just get over it. You're going to offend people, okay? You have to speak the truth. You have to see that the gospel is the answer. It is the answer. And you need to be able to speak it in a way that actually answers the questions that people have. 
Okay, and let me just say this. The spirit of God will show up when you begin to talk about his son. Now, a lot of us, we go, uh, can I get the spirit first? And then I'll talk about this. Can I, can I feel like, yeah, like I'm pumped. I'm going to go tell my coworker about Jesus or I'm going to encourage a saint in the body like because the spirit's on me. doesn't work like that. You start talking, he starts showing. It's true. Because the power is in the spoken word and declaration of the gospel. That's when the spirit goes, okay, I'll show up. I'll get on that. Listen to what Jesus said in 1526, John 1526. He says, but when the helper, that's the spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Not goosebumps and tingles, not getting slain in the Spirit, speaking in tongues, whatever. No. When does the Spirit show up? When Jesus' name is declared. When the gospel is declared. The Spirit does not exist to give us goosebumps. The Spirit exists to bring the power of Jesus' gospel into this world. You want the Spirit to show up? Speak the gospel. That's where the Spirit's at. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to do. So we speak. Secondly, we speak the truth. And for a lot of folks, um, it's not that they don't speak up. It's that what they are saying is not necessarily true or helpful. So for some of you guys, you're like, I got no problem speaking. I speak my mind. I speak to everybody. Some of you guys are like, I hate speaking. Okay, so, so those of you that have no problem speaking, let me just say, don't forget this word, Truth, okay? And again, by truth, we don't mean you smell funny, okay? That's not what we mean. Truth means you're speaking something into someone's life that is gospel-level truth. The power is not in words. The power is in words that represent ultimate realities. That's where the power is. So we don't just speak. We speak the truth into people's life. So what I don't mean by truth is I don't mean just being blunt about someone's character flaws or sin, although that sometimes is needed. I don't just mean puffing someone up. You're so amazing. Stroking someone's ego. I don't just mean telling someone what you feel like is true. I, I'm so tired of hearing that. I just feel like this is the way it's going to happen. It's like, oh, okay. I'll, that's worth a little bit. Like, I'll take it, you know. But I don't, I don't think what Paul means here is speaking what you feel like might happen. I think what Paul means here is speaking what is. What is is right now. So somebody comes to you and they say, man, I, I just got a, a report that I'm going to die of cancer. So does, does speaking the truth and love me? I'm like, well, I bet I, I have a feeling you're going to get through this. Don't say that. What they need is they need to be anchored to something that is beyond their circumstances. Something that's outside of the waves of their turbulence and their fallenness and their brokenness in their own body. They need to be reminded of what is true regardless of whether they come out of cancer. And that is that God is providential, that he's working all things together for their best. And that God has died to, so that death can die. So they only really have to die once, and that death isn't even really death. Those are truths that are outside of someone's circumstance. What you're doing is you're speaking that truth into their life in a way that's encouraging. That's what we need to do. We need to speak the truth in love. Not changing circumstances, but changing perspectives. Remember the story of Elisha? What changed? What changed? This young man's perspective changed. Oh, there's a lot more going on than I realize here. Your job as a gospel practitioner is to get people's heads and go, look up. Look up. Remember God. Remember what he has done. Remember what he is doing. Remember what he said he's going to do. Remember what he's already proved. That's what we need to do to build up the body. Speak truth in love. It's not advice. It's declaration. 
It's, it's not just telling each other what to do. Well, I think you should do this. It's, hey, don't forget what is true and what Jesus has proven to be true by the power of the resurrection. I'll give you a couple, a couple examples here quickly. Um, I was, the other day, I was just, I was just having, I'm a sinner. <laughs> yeah, big time. Uh, I was having a really hard morning. I was just being short with the kids, frustrated, having a hard time, trying to adjust from going from three kids to five kids, and it's just hard, and I was, just, I was really just sucking at it that morning. It was just bad, not good, not doing a good job. Bad dad morning. And, uh, and I was kind of, I was kind of like, I was kind of uh, letting myself feel sorry for myself a little bit. Like, I suck at this. I'm, I'm bad at this, you know? And then my lovely wife, who is, uh, in my opinion, the best gospel practitioner in my life, she came along and she did exactly what I needed. She didn't come along and say um, something like this, Sam, you're really good at this. No, that would have been a lie and I would have known that. <laughs> Sam, you're, you're the best dad ever. Like, well, not really, not right now. Okay, she didn't come along and puff me up. She also didn't come along and beat me down. She didn't come along and tell me that everything was gonna be fine. I just need to try harder. She, she didn't tell me, hey, Sam, you really need to get your stuff together. She didn't do that. What did she do? She said, I should have wrote it down because I don't remember exactly what she said. She said, you need to suck at this because it's not about you. It's about what God can do through you. You, you need to be able to be weak at this right now. You, you need to have an area in your life where you feel like you can't do this without him. I'm like, oh, thanks, babe. Oh, she's right. It's, it's, that's the kind of thing we, that I'm talking about. That's the kind of thing we need. See, she, she could have just come along and said, like, you're awesome, Sam. You could do this. You're the man. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm the man. But I'm not the man. That's the problem, right? I'm not. I'm a flawed man. I'm a sinful man. I'm a broken man. I'm a short, impatient man. I need, my, my wife needs to come and remind me of who Jesus is in the midst of what I'm not. Because if she tells me what I am, that's just more weight I have to carry of who I'm trying to be, and I already can't be that. I'm already tired. I just need to tap and go, Lord, would you be what I can't be? See, that's what the gospel sets us free to experience. That's what the gospel sets us free to experience. Another example, more in the realm of a non-Christian, I, was, I worked in retail years ago, and I worked with this young guy that was not a Christian, and he used to see me bring my Bible to work every day. He now is a believer. And... Uh, one morning, we were folding pants or whatever, and he, he kind of looks over me. He was really distraught. He's like, hey, did you see the news? Like, the Sandy Hook thing had just happened. And he was really bothered by that. He's like, what, how do, I don't know how to make sense of all that. What do I think about all that? Like, how could, he's like, how could somebody do that? Now, I, I had an, a, a choice to make. I could have just said something really, really helpful-ish in, in the world's eyes, like, well, you know, there's, you know, people do bad things, but there's good in all of us, and I'm sure he just had some bad things happen to him, and, and really, if we just do enough good things, we'll overcome evil. Like, I, I, you know, I'm optimistic still. That's probably what he wanted me to say. Are you still optimistic about humanity? Well, I told him the complete opposite. I said, yeah, that, the thing that that guy did, like, that's what we would all do if we were given that much rope. Because this thing called evil that lives within us, it's really, really bad. In fact, it's so bad that God has to destroy every gram of it. God is holy and righteous, and he's going to judge every evil thought, every evil deed, every evil, evil action. He has to. His own holiness demands it. And so, actually, God's, God's going to judge that kid in hell forever unless, unless he has his sins paid for. See, Jesus actually came in to take the wrath of God that that kid deserved. And if that kid believes it, he'll be forgiven. And God's going to deal with evil forever because he's going to destroy it all, every ounce of it, every ounce of evil. And if you're still not born again, you're still living in an evil, you're, you're going to be destroyed with it. <laughs> he kind of looked at me like, I've never heard that before. 
was like, yeah, it's kind of intense, right? He's like, yeah. Well, that's an intense thing. You know, a young kid going into school and shooting a bunch of, that's an intense thing. We need an intensely serious God in those moments, a God that's serious about sin. Last thing he needs to hear about is some weenie God that's just going to let people shoot each other for all of eternity. No, he needed to hear about the truth of a holy God, a righteous God that is serious on sin. That's going to destroy evil once and for all. And then he needed to hear about the good news about how to get on God's good side. He needed the gospel. And yeah, he told me, he's like, man, I've had a lot of Christian friends and I've never heard that before. He's like, people just usually say Jesus loves me, which I'm like, yeah, cool. I mean, who doesn't love me? (laughs) He didn't say that, but I think that's what he was thinking. Like, everyone loves me. Jesus loves me. I'm the lovable. No, you're a miserable sinner, actually. You're headed to hell. But by God's grace, if you are born again... The gospel is the answer. That's what I'm trying to get at here. And we need to speak it. We need to speak it. We need to speak it to non-Christians. We need to speak it to Christians. It is the means by which we are built up in this church. And the last thing here, speak the truth, lastly, in love. In love. This might be obvious, but it's not enough to just speak the truth. We need to speak the truth in love. In love. Let me give you a few ways to do that. First of all, consider relational equity. How well do I know this person? How well does this person know me that I love them? Am I at a place where I have enough equity to speak this truth into them? Consider speaking contextually. Are are you actually speaking the truth in a way that someone can understand? Or are you just reciting off some church jargon that they're going to be like, huh? Okay, we need to to speak it. Lovingly means the person actually understands it, right? It's not loving for me to shout out commands to my kids. It's loving for me to make sure they understand the rules so that they can thrive within them, right? as, As Christians, it's loving when we tell people the truth and they actually connect it and actually get it. And speaking the truth is not belittling or speaking condescendingly. And this is where we have to believe the gospel for ourselves first if we're going to be able to speak it into people's lives. Because what you don't want to do is you want to go, you just need to believe the gospel. And you'd be like, man, I suck at this too. And that's actually what my wife did in that moment. She, she's like, I suck at this too. I'm not doing good at this either. We need to believe the gospel together. We both need grace. We're both sinners. That's a different approach. So speak the truth and love. Why? So we can build this body up to maturity. Why? So that we are a fitting host for the head, Jesus, the one that rules this church. It's his church. He died for it. He spent his blood on it. He's the one running it through the spirit of God. And we are his body, hands, feet. Isn't that great? The way we build is we build each other through speaking the truth of the gospel into each other's life. This is paradigm shifting. We think of ministry as telling someone what to do. We're telling someone how great they are. That's neither of those. It's telling people what God has done and how they need to respond accordingly. Amen? So, this morning, let me pray, and then I'll give you a little bit of instruction. We've got a little bit of time, and kind of a, kind of a fun little uh, thing we're going to do in circle. So, Father, thank you this morning for the word. Thank you for Ephesians chapter 4. Thank you for this beautiful picture that, Spirit of God, you penned through the Apostle Paul, that we get to be this body attached to this head. We thank you for body life. For those that are experiencing it, Lord, I know we're thankful for it. For those that want it, I pray, God, you would help them to get connected to it. For those Christians that have not yet plugged in to it, Lord, lead them to it. We thank you for your spirit. And we pray that this morning we would have a good time practicing how to speak gospel truth to one another, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.